Hello friends, it's BungaCast. This is Alex here with George and Phil. This is another Alpha bonus bonus where we respond to your questions and criticisms and comments, mainly drawn from Patreon, occasionally from elsewhere, from email and so on. Um, and uh, people seem to enjoy these. Uh, so we're very happy to keep continuing doing these every six weeks, six to eight weeks or so. Um, but before we do that, um, taking up a suggestion from a listener, we're going to do a little um, summer reading list. I mean, for those of you at least which is the vast majority of you in the Northern Hemisphere for whom it is summer and all winter. Um, so for, at least my recommendations are things that I will be reading the next months, but aren't exactly summer reading. But anyway, um, I'll, we'll start with George. Uh, what are you uh, looking forward to reading both fiction and nonfiction? Yeah, so I guess it, it's, it's the difference between the things that you intend to read and the things that you actually read. I think, I think there's going to be quite a gap um, and so the thing, some of the things that I'm intending to read and I, I've bought and um, kind of am looking forward to reading. Um, one is Adrian Papp's book on post-liberalism, which I think could be uh, could be really interesting. Um, but I'm also being stared at from from my bookshelves by um, something a bit less highbrow. The Couple at Number Nine by Claire Douglas, which is like one of these like eerie thrillers, like um, a kind of beach beach read and I read a, I read a lot of I basically intend to read all these books about political theory but then when it comes to the crunch I will generally pick up a regional British detective <laughs> novel uh, one just in the uh, Peak District just finished so um, yeah I think those are my I don't want to I don't want to commit too much typical because <laughs> I will I will say I'm going to read oh yeah I'm actually, actually want to dip into the Grundrisse um, but I'm, I mean will I actually do that maybe maybe not <laughs> dip like while you're dipping into the pool on your summer holiday you're just dip into the grundrisse a bit like that um, exactly yeah phil yeah so i'm after lockdown and all the insanity of the last few years and um and also many years of not actually taking proper holidays i'm trying this year to do an actual full-on um proper french style holiday so i'm taking three weeks in spain Barcelona just outside Barcelona in August and so in keeping with that I was going to reread uh, Homage to Catalonia which I haven't you know haven't looked at in ages and I'll be interested to kind of read it I guess being um, being older I was also gonna I'm gonna just read I guess some stuff on uh, Spanish history perhaps uh, one of the um, books by the British historian of the Spanish Civil War Peter Preston and also um, finish the forging of a rebel which is uh, an autobiographical trilogy of books which is written by uh, arturo barea um, i think i pronounced his name right who is a journalist who um uh, fought on the republican side in the spanish civil war and uh, fled to the uk after franco took power so basically a spanish spanish themed holiday for a holiday in spain very good um i will uh well i've just started reading I, I had two books that I started reading a while ago, put them down, and now I actually decided to read them in earnest. It's uh, The Road by Cormac McCarthy and a Portuguese novel, uh, which came out in 1995, uh, whose title in English is Blindness in, uh, in Portuguese. It's an it's essay on really blindness. Good. Really good. Uh, I mean, I read it in English. It's really good. Jose yeah. Saramago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, both kind of dystopian, I suppose, in their own ways, um, and both with very particular typesetting which normally isn't a selling point for, for, for a book because you just want to read the actual words and not how they're laid out. But um, I think even that is, is an interesting element. Um, and then in terms of uh, nonfiction, um, I'm looking forward to when I get a little bit of free time uh, to read Rachel Lawden's Cuisine and Empire, Cooking in World History, which uh, presents a sort of modernist account of a lot of... Uh, Ah, where a lot of food and recipes come from, a lot of which is far more recent than we tend to think. Um, so uh, I guess pushing my modernist uh, angle into food, two things that I really like, um, as well as other things I should be reading maybe for the podcast, uh, Gary Gersel's new big book on uh, neoliberalism, uh, which relates to an episode which uh, will be coming out next week, I think, listener, uh, on uh, Fritz Bartel's The Triumph of Broken Promises about the end of the Cold War and, and the rise of neoliberalism. 
and uh, hopefully also read um, some background reading for our upcoming reading club, where we're starting the new section on uh, cynical ideology. And I'm going to be reading uh, Peter Sloterdijk's The Critique of Cynical Reason, which is a, a very important book from the late 80s in Germany, which Zizek uh, draws a lot from. So hopefully I can uh, not just discuss the Zizek, but the, the background stuff and uh, therefore sound smart. Um, well, you'll you be guys are so, so pretentious. Like... I mean, I mean, if you actually do read all of these books that you've just listed, then you know, well done. I, I will, I will be impressed. But it's, I mean, it's a few books. I'm taking maybe three books. I've read part of the trilogy that I mentioned already. I wanted to finish it. It's not like, and is it so pretentious to read books about a country that you're visiting? Yeah, yeah it is. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's, you should read you books know, about regions of of the UK. That should be your starting <laughs> point. Um, Typically, yeah, yeah. I, no, I, oh, yeah. I, be, be, I, be pretentious and you may land on the moon, you know. Are you, um, are you I, even, are you even, are you even going on holiday, George, like anywhere outside the UK or, or you're going to celebrate the end of lockdown by staying in the UK? I'm going to Devon. It's a beautiful county in this country. I'm not ashamed of, of this country. You, you may be, uh, Phil, but I'm, you should I'm be. not. You should be, but yeah, you know. <laughs> um, no, the, the, yeah, I mean, I, I should maybe I should uh, raise my expectations of myself a little bit and um, t- take on a, 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 a chunkier set of, of readings. But I thought you were a I lockdown would... skeptic, George. What do you mean? Well, you're still practicing lockdown, so why, despite guys, lo- lockdown has been over for ages. What are you? What are you even talking about? Well, that's I why think... I'm asking why George is deciding to stay in the UK. He's not going on a holiday, no. Oh no, I just like to keep my carbon footprint as small as possible, but. That's just me. I just care about the, you know, the, the world yeah. not burning. But fine if you if you if that's what you want. Um, no, yeah. Well, I mean, but I don't. I don't know. Let's 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 see. I'm gonna pitch low and then go high and say like, here's all of the books that I've read when we come back at, to review this in the autumn. Very good. Yeah. Well, there'll be uh, there'll be assigned uh, book reviews. Uh, to make sure everyone's done the reading. <laughs> anyway, um, let's get cracking on Alpha Bonus Bonus, where we respond to your questions. Um, let's get started with uh, first an email from uh, Tim Abrahams, uh, who's a long-time listener, first-time caller. Hi, Tim. <laughs> he uh, is wondering whether uh, the following question makes him a fascist or not. Um, but, you know, we're, we're uh, ecumenical here. Um, in what way does the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, Tim asks, relate to the international lockdowns, particularly in Europe or the USA from 2020 to 2022? Is the Russian invasion related to a wider collapse of statecraft? Or was it simple opportunism? Did Putin sense vulnerability? Or was the overwhelming signifier to Putin being US withdrawal in Afghanistan? Or do these things just have nothing to do with one another? Um, and also he asked for us to do a shout out to his cousin, Sean, uh, who's just off on her honeymoon in Italy with her partner, Anthony. Um, don't get to do those very often. I kind of enjoy that. Yeah, it's kind of cool, yeah. But as I mean, given the fact he's worried about being a fascist, I think it's only appropriate that George should cance- cancel Tim. So, If you're worried about being a fascist, then you almost certainly are a fascist. And that's the thing that I would say to, to Tim. I mean, and <clears throat> listeners may or may not realize Tim uh, accompanied, well, didn't accompany, he was already there in, in LA when Alex and I recorded the bunga. Uh, the Kali Bunga series. Yes, um, where he features, in, in fact, yeah. Indeed, indeed. So actually, not first-time caller, but somebody who's who's <laughs> or actually been on, on already. Um, anyhow, the... Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure how the Russian invasion of Ukraine relates to, to lockdowns. There's certainly, I guess, there is a sense, or one of the lessons that you can draw from that was the the general sense of, like, lack of ideas amongst amongst states statesmen states people so like you could i guess you could take the lesson from that if you're putin or, or anybody that yeah what what's the what are the probability that you're going to have a concerted international response to to an act of aggression in the in ukraine well maybe not so maybe not so high like the populations are demobilized and demoralized and you know distracted by this this other thing so maybe the time is right you've got to you've got to take your chance but I, I don't know what what i don't know why tim thinks that would make him a fascist that's that's my yeah. i must be missing something about the question unless unless he has a guilty conscience <laughs> yeah. i'm slightly puzzled as well um i don't i don't i mean i don't really i'm not sure i you know that it was kind of uh 
Putin saw a kind of an opportunity um, growing out of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. I mean, it's kind of counterintuitive. I mean, if the U.S. was in Afghanistan, presumably it'd be more difficult for them to deal with an invasion. So he should have done it sooner. I think it's more driven by um, my read of it, at least would be it's more driven by what's happening in Russia itself, in the sense that this is uh, kind of um, a make or break uh, situation in terms of Russia, you know, Russia's power, kind of um, uh, its demographic capacity um, declining over time. And it's so it's this was the opportunity, you know, more or less kind of this time frame of these few years around now with the final opportunity that Putin had in order to um secure i suppose uh, the russian state in his vision of it at least and with respect to nato expansion and with respect to the us um particularly in advance of another american election so i mean i would read it more in terms of the wider kind of um you know the wider context rather than simply a response to uh, to the withdrawal. But that said, I mean, it seems to me like if you see how poorly, and this came up in the episode that we had with Richard Sacco, I guess we'll talk about it, how poorly prepared strategically and ideologically kind of Russian soldiers were, even the top echelons of the Russian elite didn't seem to know the invasion was going to happen up until the very last minute. It seems like, you know, and the fact that it all happened under the show of US satellites, um, I think probably it was on Putin's part, he, it was right up to the last minute, whether it was kind of saber rattling to extract as many concessions as he could without fighting or to go in full in an invasion. I think he probably, you know, left it right till the last moment, um, because I think that would be this, the, that would be the explanation that's most consistent with how the run up to the invasion played earlier this year. Mm, yeah. No. And I guess the only other aspect to add to there would be really coincidental things that maybe the lockdown you know, allowed Russia time to build up its sanctions building capacities, sanctions, excuse me, sanctions busting capacities, um, which it seems to have been able to, to do. Um, and there was also rise in oil prices before that, which obviously also played into Russia's hands to a certain extent and why it's able to withstand the sanctions that are going on. Anyway, we discussed all this with Richard Sacco. Um, we're going to take another question, which is another sort of general point um, before we go through episode by episode. Uh, and this is uh, from Dan O'Hara, who says that in the Canadian province of Ontario, the Progressive Con Conservative Party and their pseudo-populist candidate, Doug Ford, uh, you'll remember that surname. It's not, though, it, it's a different guy. Uh, the late crack smoking mayor of, of Toronto was his brother. Um, so uh, Doug Ford was re-elected a few weeks ago. Ford bungled COVID in every way imaginable, first by initially implementing a nonsensical and erratic lockdown policy with neither rhyme nor reason, which angered liberal progressives, and then extended the lockdowns pretty much indefinitely, angering a substantial section of his own base. Uh, turnout dropped 13 percentage points to 43%, the lowest in Ontario's history. Ford is already remembered as doing a quote-unquote decent job handling COVID, contrary to all reporting from all sides over the past two years. Bizarre stuff. Indeed, I think that's something that can resonate elsewhere, uh, <laughs> where um, no one did a good job of COVID, more or less, and no one really held to account for it. I don't think they're really seeing any political consequences. People were just happy for it to all be over. Yeah, I think that's right. Well, in part because there was no organized response or alternative or whatever. So, yeah, there's not, well, there's there was, not really... There was protests here in the UK that were organized by various kind of... Um you know, kind of small businesses, ordinary citizens, what have you. Um, ordinary by... citizens, was it? I mean, yeah, I mean, you don't need to put it in such like, in those sort of terms. Yeah, I mean, the, the point is no no institutional, like party level. Like, just like, I don't know, you're just like, oh, just ordinary, hardworking citizens. <laughs> like, what, what, what does it matter if whether they're ordinary or extraordinary citizens? It's, they obviously were organized. It wasn't just everybody spontaneously showing up. But I'm, I guess my point is that there's like, who who could have made hay out of this by saying we opposed this at the time? I don't know if there was really any, like any part, any parties across Western Europe with like deep social roots but, but that, he, that did this. It could well, even there have are no parties inquiry. left really with deep social roots. Anyway, my point about ordinary citizens was that it wasn't only small business owners, right? So that was my point. It was just kind of people for who were, you know, kind of parents and people who were frustrated with lockdown for all sorts of different reasons. And they provided many of the foot soldiers of the very large anti-lockdown marches that happened in the UK. So, I mean, it was organized, though, like you say, George, not it didn't really have political representation and certainly not from any major political parties. 
So uh, moving on, um, we're going to go back to front. So from oldest to newest, we're going to start with number 265, which is the last alpha bonus bonus, just picking up a couple of the themes to keep this uh, discussion ongoing because we had some uh, pushback on certain issues. So one of the questions was the that of who is the ruling class? Now, the original episode that this referred to was our discussion with uh, Joshua de Pickett, uh, Pickett de and Elena Lange. Um, where Elena had said that the left is the ruling class, and Dan O'Hara takes exception to that and to our discussion of it, saying the left can't be the ruling class because it's not a class. A class is defined by its relation to the means of production, and the ruling class is the class that appropriates the surplus value produced by the laboring class. In capitalism, that's the bourgeoisie, not the PMC or the middle class or whoever. You might find this uh, boring and unsexy, but capitalists are still the ruling class. All of this is obviously basic for a Marxist, but it nevertheless but is nevertheless what identitarianism functioning as bourgeois liberal ideology works to obscure. Guys, come on, don't fall for it, concludes Dan. Um, and in related uh, related comment, Blake says that the World Economic Forum is literally just a TED conference for oligarchs. It has no executive power at all. Thinking that the WEF, uh, the World Economic Forum, is searing the global economy is the equivalent to thinking that the Bolshevik revolution was planned by Central Cafe in Vienna because it was Trotsky and Stalin's favorite bar. Yeah, so um, I take, I mean, I think Blake's point about the WEF is well made. I mean, you know, it's a good, the kind of things they talk about, I think, are, you know, like um, the pod living and you'll be they happy. Who? The people who attend the WEF and Klaus Schwab having made it like a complete networking event. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't think that's, I don't think that's uh, irrelevant to having a grasp of what global elites are thinking, I think it's useful, but like he says, you know, it's a TED conference, it's not like an executive decision-making forum. Uh, that said, I wanted to, I want to kind of respond to Dan because I was, uh, I defended, um, I defended Elaine on this and Dan is right, obviously. So the left is kind of a grouping on the political spectrum, um, whereas uh, the ruling class, at least in the classical kind of Marxist definition, refers to relationship to the means of production. And so by definition, you know, you can't have like um, a political descriptor uh, to fit, um, you know, kind of uh, a um, category that's defined by, relate, by how it relates to the means of production. So, um, you know, I mean, so it was a discussion where I suppose... Um, what I would say in Elena's defense and in my defense is, you know, it's kind of over forcing of the point, but I would stick by it to this extent. I don't think the left is the ruling class in the sense that the left monopolizes or controls access to and so on the means of production. So they're not a ruling class like that. I think that it would, would be hard pressed to say that the capitalists constitute a ruling class only because I think it's difficult to talk about them constituting a coherent kind of, um, block given the fact that there is no organized labor movement to which they could counterpose themselves um i would also say you know ruling class i'm not sure the i'm not sure the capitalists ever constitute a, di a direct ruling class because by definition they rule indirectly through a state which will absorb all sorts of um you know and constitute a ruling class from all sorts of other strata you know in classical kind of european nation state absorb the aristocracy into the ruling class on behalf of the industrialists and the bourgeoisie so I don't accept Dan's kind of, um, I don't accept Dan's uh, definition of what the ruling class, you know, is. And I also would, um, you know, pull back from the overextended way in which we talked about it in the previous episode, but also say, I don't think we can talk about the capitalists meaningfully constituting a class when they don't have an organized labor movement against which to define themselves. And I think the lack of capitalist cohesion is part of the problem that we confront rather than the, you know, kind of um, organization and direction and um, forward momentum of the capitalist class. And it's in the gap between those two things that you see um, the PMC, who would be the socio who are, I think, by definition, the Brahmin class, as Thomas Piketty called them, the sociological basis and constituency for the left at the moment because the working class isn't anymore so to that extent the pmc has an oversized role in contemporary western politics to that extent the left is in charge right not the ruling class by the definition of how we define classes but the pmc is in charge well nevertheless girls and boys market that is as close uh, as you'll get to a mea culpa from phil so um 
you know, important moment here. We're making progress. Anyway, so uh, <laughs> I, I, I think I, I, I take Phil's point. I, uh, one point just to add um, is just that we should bring back the term the bureaucracy because it's something that is maybe uh, not often uh, spoken about in those terms today in a lot of uh, discourse. And it's probably worth bringing back because especially when we're talking about state and its agencies and, and also indeed even in the private sector, you know, the PMC are largely speaking bureaucrats um, in many cases. Certainly, the managerial, the managers there, not necessarily the professionals, but um, uh, the bureaucratization of the professions is also a, a major factor there. So, anyway, um, just throwing that in. So there. Just a just a quick point on on this, which <clears throat> I don't think really decides it or contributes too much either way. But there's a Goran Thurborn book. What does the ruling class do when it rules? And it's, it's, I think it's interesting. I, I need to reread it. I haven't read it in ages, but I, I mean to. Maybe, Maybe I should, should reread that over some Yeah, your gammon holiday in Devon, do that. But what he says is that what the ruling class does when it rules is not accumulate capital, but reproduce itself. That's the, that is the fundamental sociological function that it, that it fulfills. So that's interesting. That kind of leads you down the route of educational like if you were to make the, the argument like who is the, the ruling class isn't strictly just the capitalist class how is whoever's at the top of society um how are those groups reproducing themselves and i think education would be uh, someone like michael lynn ex- ex- explores quite quite an important mechanism but anyway i should probably <laughs> i should probably reread that before bringing it up because basically all i can remember is that the it's what it's a cool book because it's got a question as the title and then it gives an answer to the to the uh, question of the title. Very good. So you don't need you don't even need to flip past the cover. Um, there's a little discussion also on uh, social re- reproduction theory that uh, happened in the comments. Uh, Kumran said uh, SRT, social reproduction theory, is a sad parody of 1930s popular frontism and Stalinism. Carson H replied that. Uh, know that the basic insights of SRT when it comes to social reproduction of labor power are perfectly relevant to Marx's analysis of the political economy and are not just a kind of degenerated form of Marxism. Qumran comes back saying, no, it is Stalinism because it wants the working class to subordinate itself to the progressive bourgeoisie. SRT is an incoherent mess. It's disinterested in the analysis of capitalist production, confused about levels of abstraction and devoid of any theoretical content. Um, now, I think this is mainly directed at me because I, I, kind of came to the defense of social reproduction theory, or at least to the concepts of social reproduction that are worked through by some 20th century theorists, um, maybe some associated with feminism. And I think some of those insights are valid. Um, but again, I, I don't know enough. I haven't read enough social reproduction theory to really say that, oh, I embrace the theory as a whole, such as it is. And neither of these guys have anything to say either. So uh, we'll move on. So uh, the next one was uh, three articles on inflation, number 265. Um, There was some real pushback about uh, one of the articles that was chosen, A Peace and Compact. Um, The the issue was was that- It was the one by Chris Caldwell. Right, exactly. And um, the point was that made in there is that inflation is a choice, which has- an element of truth to it, but people take issue with some other aspects. Um, Eli asked or points out that it still leaves the question of which fraction of capital needs cheap money and which would benefit from cheap money, from tight money, excuse me. So, which is to say, um, if inflation is a choice, who's doing the choosing and on behalf of whom? Because for some people, inflation might be good, for others, not. And I, just, I don't mean some people across society, but different fractions of capital. Um, Kenneth Smith takes issue with uh, the article saying it's incredibly flimsy and ideological, but very on brand for compact. So pathologically fixated on blaming everything on wokeness. Uh, Just to remind listeners, the article made this argument about inflation being a political choice, but then said it's basically because Biden has funneled all all this stimulus money towards like uh, middle class black groups and causes like that. Um, So basically you know, wokeness caused inflation. Uh, Carson H says, it's bizarre to take such a profoundly unserious piece of commentary so seriously. Uh, That's a jibe at us. Uh, It reads like a boomer post on Facebook rewritten by someone with a graduate degree. And Darius K said, uh, felt like a less nuanced and less empirically founded approach to emphasizing the political dimensions of inflation, which someone like twos by contrast brings out so well. He continues that uh, the combination of technocratic failure, institutional and policy vacuousness, 
and such partial efforts to attempt to justify labor bearing the costs of inflation is the paradigmatic knobs legitimation crisis, or at least uh, he asks whether what we're seeing here is the parada paradigmatic knobs legitimation crisis. Yeah. So before we before we respond to Darius's question, um, I suppose I should I just wanted to briefly defend Coldwell. Uh, I mean, his politics is very clear, um, and that no doubt about that. And he has less kind of technical um, detail in his piece about the um, supply shocks driving um, inflation, and unlike the twos piece. But the important point, I think, is, you know, um, he says very clearly, and none of our listeners dispute this, this claim, that you can clearly see inflation beginning in the US before the supply shocks associated with Ukraine war. So you have to find alternative explanations for them that aren't just, um, you know, aren't just driven by factors that are external to the US. And I think, um, you know, so I mean, I think, I think the kind of uh, the, I think his explanation has to be factored in. And also, he doesn't really talk about this, but I think it's an important part of it, is I think the Biden administration, it's Carter are, you know, they remember the failures of the Obama administration. Um, to really have a sufficiently large stimulus. They accepted all of those criticisms, and that was the criticism, indeed, that twos made of the Obama administration, right? So they didn't want to make the same mistake, so they really kind of um, thrust through an enormous kind of fiscal stimulus, and including kind of providing money along the way to all the Democrats' kind of favoured NGOs and um, voter, you know, voting constituents, voter blocks. So it doesn't yeah, seem that, to me it's an outrageous... Yeah, but that isn't like a tail wagging. It's still not the tail wagging the dog, right? It's not um, the Democrats' favorite constituencies which are driving um, inflation because they demand. No, but I don't know, really think that Coldwell said that. You know, I mean, maybe the title is kind of you no, know. No, he he, he oh, does he does start. He basically argues that wokeness caused inflation. That like, it's if a Biden, word, well, I mean, look, the idea. I, the, I, don't the think, I think the ideological commitments of the Biden administration are relevant to the discussion of inflation. So, but to I, that extent, I would defend Coldwell. Yeah, I mean, just something which which struck me was <clears throat> you could have a mechanism which is like if political conflict at the end of the end of history is is sort of without representation, then you could see a sort of mechanism here. I'm not saying that I necessarily agree with with, uh, with Caldwell, but I, although I did really, I think I even suggested the article. So, <laughs> I mean, I did think it was good, um, and the central like use of that Goldthorpe um book is was was really good um but yeah you could have this mechanism where political conflict without representation is material claims with no counterclaims so you have like this economy of basically like making demands on um on material resources of the state and no one kind of um in a represented way uh pushing back against those so there is a dynamic of which would tend towards inflation. And that's obviously not what Caldwell argues, and I'm not sure if that is even right itself, but that's just something that, that came to mind that you could you could see a sort of a, a tendency in this direction, potentially. Um, so just take another comment on um, this inflation. Uh, Vulcan let me, says let that, me just say, can I say one final yeah, thing on this, Alex, right. quickly? So look, I mean, this is the, the thing, right? So Caldwell banks on empirical claims, right? So to really challenge the point about the inflation being visible in the American economy before the shocks, right? So to really challenge his claims, I think, you know, you need to question the empirical base, his empirical foundation, right? And none of our listeners did that. And so until I see kind of a counterclaim on those grounds, I'm sympathetic to some of Coldwell's framing of the inflation of the inflation in the US. Yeah, that may be, but um, I still, yeah, I, I think we can dismiss the wokery caused um, <laughs> inflation out of hand. I, think I just, just, I just came up with an explanation. You can't dismiss that out of hand. You have to at least think about it and then dismiss it in hand once you've <laughs> said that I'm wrong. Um, well, anyway. I, I mean, related to this, Vulcan says that the ad hoc social structures of globalism, aka wokery, are replacing those of stable employment and constitutional democracy. In time, we can expect a new set of more formal relations to emerge on lines developed by the UN or World Economic Forum. Um, I'm not sure because, I mean, the the the, the bases of stable employment and constitutional democracy were undermined, withered away, fractured well before anything called wokery, or certainly before what is now called wokery left the confines of, uh, you know, Ivy League campuses in the 1980s. So I don't think that's, uh, I, don't, I don't think that's 
exactly right in terms of wokery directly replacing those those other things i don't like the word wokery it just is a horrible word um i would instead talk about intergovernmentalism which is a much more beautiful sounding word um and there is something here but like so intergovernmentalism i the idea that like there's a there is a transnational network of like political elite and this is where a lot of policy direction and, and legitimacy comes from so and so there is a, a reason there is a kind of um there is a structure there for like policy transmission and uh, um and adoption and i don't think it's about wokery or like those kind of progressive social attitudes although they're, they're probably held by a lot of the people who um who kind of mix in these these structures but i think you could see an increased uh, I think COVID is a good example of this. You can see a tendency, a convergence, um, or there's pressures towards convergence. So maybe the, you know, the ad hoc social structures of globalism are to be replaced by the political structures of intergovernmentalism. I don't know if that's the way maybe I'd put it. Maybe that doesn't really answer the question, but there wasn't a, there wasn't a question. It was a statement. <laughs> um, so I don't as, feel as to being the, the, the question that Darius puts to us, whether um, this combination of technocratic failure, you know, vacuousness, and to make labor bear the cost of inflation, whether it's the paradigmatic knobs legitimation crisis, not yet, but I think as, uh, as we discussed, um, I, actually, again, it's something that you haven't heard yet, but we discuss in the uh, upcoming episode with uh, Fritz Bartel, um, it does seem to be that that might then emerge. And just to kind of spell out what that is, uh, it, it would be that even kind of uh, neoliberalism and rather populists were able to be um, parasitic on the fact that states still function more or less and that people could still get by more or less under more and more straightened circumstances because they had access to credit and cheaper commodities and so on. Once that evaporates, then there's very little left holding the legitimacy up of, uh, of of Western regimes. And that then, yes, I think this might indeed be a, a much more serious legitimation crisis. Um, anyway, but that's all to be seen. Moving on to uh, the next one. Well, uh, very popular, uh, the episode of Benjamin Fogel on the South African mafia state. People were found it incredibly grim and also concerning in that, well, is this what is coming to me um, where I am? Um, yeah, I, th I mean, I was very, I mean, as I said, you know, I was very taken with um, Ben's kind of um, potted history of South Africa. The only thing I'd say is on this, like, I, I was, I guess, what I wanted to, uh, it's the failure of the left that I thought I wanted to kind of talk about more, but hopefully we can talk about it more with, um, you know, in due course, I think, because it's an important, given how much uh, legitimacy was staked on overthrowing apartheid and how this is something the left could claim despite the collapse of the Soviet bloc, at the end of the Cold War, this was something the left could say, well, there was still something good that happened at the end of the Cold War. You know, we overthrew apartheid. I think that's, you know, that failure of um, the ANC in the aftermath of apartheid needs more attention. Mm. Um, so uh, to move on to our three articles on the 1990s, you know, and whether they were political or how to characterize the 1990s culturally, politically, and so on. Um, one of the articles, it was the one that I introduced, was um, about art, contemporary art. It was an article from 2015. And um, I said I wasn't familiar enough with what was going on in contemporary art. And if anybody was, please get in touch. And someone did. Uh, Patrick Templeton, uh, who works in the kind of cultural world, um, set us straight. And I mean, it's a long response, but I think it's pretty useful. Uh, so I will read it uh, pretty much in, in full. Um, so apparently, according to Patrick, that what is portrayed in Jason Farrago's 2015 article about the 90s as the decade that never ended is now outdated. The vibe has shifted. Um, we can just compare 2017 and 2022, looking at the Whitney biennials of those years. So in 2017, the exhibition curated around the theme of violence, racism, sexism, xenophobia, xenophobia bigotry, etc., is not remembered for any particularly powerful political statement, but for the outrage at one mediocre abstract painting by Dana Schultz titled Open Casket. In these early days of cancel culture, there was an open letter calling for the painting of the lynched and disfigured Emmett Till to be removed because Schutz is a white woman. Hands were wrung, ink was spilt. The rest of the exhibition, nothing really stood out aesthetically. 
It was all very much in the spirit of Jeremy Osborne's obstinate peep show poem yelling, fuck you, Bush, except fuck you, Trump, in this case, uh, which is what I had said and which is why I think we use that clip as an outro. Um, but Patrick says, you know, by the 2022 biennial, uh, delayed a year by the pandemic, uh, things couldn't be more different. If 2017 was insolent, using art to take a stand and speak truth to power, 2022 is pensive and conciliatory, using art to reflect on the state of the world, the pandemic, the climate, and the political upheaval. For example, one of the most widely written about pieces from the 2022 exhibition is Coco Fusco's video, Your Eyes Will Be an Empty World, in which she shows, excuse me, in which she rows a boat around Hart Island, where there are mass graves for New York's COVID-19 victims while reciting a dirge. The art of the 90s can largely be characterized with a term coined in 1966-1996 by Nicholas Bouriard, relational aesthetics. It is quite literally an art without qualities. For relational aesthetics, art is an event, because an event is when objects or actions are recontextualized. The art doesn't look like art because the art object isn't the point. But today, the art object is back, and now it is a modern head with a Baroque body. So think of Barack Obama's 2018 presidential portrait by Kehinde Wiley, the first black president sitting amid a field of hyper-realistic chrysanthemums, blue lilies, and jasmine. The modern head is its modern sensibilities towards identity politics, but the art object itself is a quote-unquote Baroque body. Uh, so does this mean that history, or culture as Farago substitutes, is no longer dead? I don't know, says Patrick, but it does feel the vibe shifted. The emphasis is no longer on novelty, conceptual interest, or ideological purity. And to further dismiss Farago's view of the relevance of the 90s today, the artists he pointed to, Damien Hirst and Alex Bagg, are not the ones people reference today. Rather, it's 90s artists such as Pipilotti uh, Rist and Matthew Barney, who have always prioritized nuanced storytelling through carefully crafted artworks and seem to have had a longer shelf life. Thank you for that, Patrick. Uh, I think that was uh, good to set us right. Uh, so from someone who knows uh, who knows a bit about art, I take that. And it'll be interesting to explore that a little bit further. We should maybe do some more on uh, contemporary art and what it says about the world. Yeah, it was a wonderfully, wonderfully informative um, uh, comment. And um, particularly the thing, you know, it's very striking what he, uh, the presidential portrait of Obama that he mentions as well. So I think uh, it kind of fits with the idea, like, End of end of his the end of history art was without qualities and now qualities are coming back in even if they're modern and baroque and all mixed up but you know some qualities are better than none maybe <laughs> say what do you like know. about say, say what do you like about the nazis at least they had qualities yeah yeah um, i mean but you, you you don't know art but no you don't you can't define art but you know it when you see it because it's now it's got qualities yeah. So there you go. Yeah. Um, continuing about the 90s, but in a more political vein, Richard Roberts points out that actually the 1990s did see something emerge. It was the concept of the fourth world, an alliance between Palestine and, is, uh, and Irish nationalists and Latin American communists and indigenous groups, for example. While politically ineffective and possibly an extension of 1960s colonialism, fourth worldism seems to have shaped populist nationalism as well as the broad realm of right-wing reaction against globalism, as well as climate politics broadly. You can't look at things like rivers or trees being made legal persons without, taking, without talking about identitarian resistance to neoliberalism in the 90s. Uh, Eli kind of takes up this idea and responds saying, the 90s could definitely be worth investigating as the moment when, in the aftermath of the Cold War, the old left fully died and the new left third worldists became the dominant or in some ways the only left-wing project going. Anyway, if we want to thread a line through to today, the hashtag decolonized types could well be it. And I would equally throw at them the critique that they're not actually decolonizing at all. They're doing derivative imperial nationalism for inter-imperial competition. Um, so yeah, this is, I guess, this fourth worldism when the kind of any lingering connection to the old left has died. Um, Richard Roberts comes back just to kind of conclude this section, says that the fourth worldism of the actual mainstream left, not of the indigenous movements themselves in the former third world, uh, the fourth worldism of the mainstream left today is a through line between hippie naturalistic romanticism to the economic nationalism we now see posed as a hegemonic challenge to global capitalism. The point being here is that something did indeed happen in the 90s, and it was the development of this fourth worldism. So I would just quickly, um, I just wanted to quickly kind of respond to this, uh, to qualify. I mean, I think it's an interesting discussion. And I just 
uh, add two qualifying comments to what our listeners said here. The first is with what with respect to what Eli said. Um, I think part of this was overthrowing the third worldism in a way, because what was striking about the humanitarian imperialism of this period was precisely that it targeted some of the leading states of the third world, and you know, kind of, and uh, not even to the extent of. Um, backing up um, kind of secessionist movements against these old kind of uh, third world uh, or third world nation states. So classic, you know, Yugoslavia with Kosovo, uh, Indonesia with East Timor and Iraq and Kurdistan. Um, but there's other examples as well. I mean, you could also perhaps take, um, you know, the kind of uh, South um, independence of South Sudan from Sudan. So I think, you know, it wasn't kind of, it's not a kind of a triumph of third worldism, but rather um, the left, in a way, kind of emancipating itself from third worldism in favor of more kind of beleaguered and embattled groups yeah. on whose behalf it can speak. And the Palestinians being a classic one, right? And that's partly the shift from the pro Zionist left of the Cold War era to the pro Palestinian left of the post Cold War era. It's very easy to um, mobilize and speak on behalf of the powerless and the defeated as the Palestinians were in the aftermath of Oslo. Um, so I think it's, you know, the kind of the way in which the fourth world kind of concept as uh, Richard Roberts puts it emerged, I think is, um, you know, a consequence of um, kind of geopolitical changes and defeats, but also of powerlessness and why the left kind of um, was happy to defend the human rights of the powerless. Um, yeah, it's sort of about... global, global uh, lumpen proletariat, I guess, in a way. Um... Well, uh, well, I mean, I, I wouldn't put it like that. But um, the on I the would. question of <laughs> on the question of the, something did happen in the 90s, um, I suppose it depends what you mean by something happening, right? Um, I mean, I don't. It's not that something happened in the sense that there was contestation over the basic parameter, you know, the basic parameters of political order. Um, but I mean, I don't, you know, the fact that some of the things we're dealing with now that the that the foundations of that were laid earlier. I mean, you know, I wouldn't disagree with that. So we've got two more episodes to deal with, and there were two uh, popular ones. It was the double episode of uh, Richard Sacco on Russia and Ukraine. And then we will finish off by discussing the most recent one, which was on abortion, Roe versus Wade, and so on, with Alex Gurevich. But firstly, uh, Russia. So um, taking one comment, and we don't normally do this because we prefer to take all the comments from Patreon or things we receive by email. Keep it, you know, exclusive, like... But uh, we will take one question from uh, which was posted in the YouTube comments in response to this. And I know shouldn't read YouTube comments. They are uh, literally the fucking like retard universe of of Internet comments, probably the worst place in the world. But there was a good one taking us to task for this episode. He, uh, Hol uh, Holger Karstensen says, usually a big fan of your podcast, guys, uh, of your guests, of analyses. Cheers to all that. But it, that makes it all the more of an enigma about as to why your critical capacities didn't even muster comment or inquiry into some of your guests' positions on Russia's behavior as a state, which is debatably quasi-fascist today. It's illegitimate invasion of Ukraine and the deadly violation of their right to self-determination. The ultimate answer as to Ukraine's future must, of course, come from Kiev, not Washington. I'm not naive or unaware of geopolitics, power relations, or the Chinese angle, for that matter. But this was the first time I had an uneasy feeling of ivory tower academics debating without any idea of what people on the ground actually think, feel, or want, the supposed subjects of all your theorizing. Rather than listening to geopolitical truisms, I'd be interested in what emancipatory perspectives can be salvaged from the current horrible situation. Still lots of interesting analyses, though. Thanks for that. <laughs> Thank you, Holger. Yeah, so, I mean, Holger is, um, Holger is uh, kind of disputing um, uh, the converse, you know, what Richard Sacco said, I suppose, and perhaps um, disputing my failure to criticize him for um, his... A refusal to recognize the aspirations of the Ukrainians. I wouldn't, I mean, I don't think, you know, I don't think, um, you know, I don't accept kind of uh, the rhetorical stuff that Holger says here, like saying that Russia is kind of fascist or quasi-fascist, 
because I mean I don't accept it as a as the accurate characterization of the Russian state, but also in the interview that we did with Richard Sacco, he offers his own account of how to account of the Russian state, um, and we talk a bit about that. So. Um, you know, there is an account, a theoretical account of um, the Putin regime and the Russian state um, and how it behaves. So on the question of whether or not it's ivory tower academics, I mean, I suppose, you know, there's always that. I don't think it was, I think, but it's a charge, I suppose, that could be laid at any of our or many of our uh, guests. So I don't know that um, that Richard's discussion stands out for that. Indeed, I think, I mean, he gives, a, you know, his his analysis on the on Russia is a perspective that's very rarely heard in the Western Academy, which tends to be overwhelmingly um, has been, you know, kind of um, anti-Russian to the point of um, irrationality when we think about how Western academics responded um, to the election of Trump, for instance. So I don't think they were geopolitical truisms. You know, I don't think it was kind of um, cheap geopolitical talking points. I think some important points were made, including the prospect for Ukraine um, with a very kind of um, harsh and pessimistic scenario, which Richard offered that Ukraine will effectively be a divided state. And that's the best that we can hope for, in his words, was armistice. And I don't, you know, he might be wrong, but I don't think those were kind of flippant truisms. On what an emancipatory perspective might look like, um, I don't know that there's, I mean, you know, I think that surely must start from the actual politics of the situation. And to reckon with that politics requires incorporating, I think, the kinds of analysis that Richard provides, which doesn't to say that he's right about everything. And I disagree with him about some of the things. But um, I think, you know, certainly like his, um, you know, I think his view is useful to think about in response to what a future Ukrainian you know, nation could look like, because if it's going to be divided, then that means Ukrainian nationhood will have to be organized around taking back territory that Russia is going to rule. And so, you know, if that's an emancipatory perspective, I don't know, but it doesn't bode well for um, for peace um, in Eastern Europe. So, I mean, just to throw this in there, um, and it's just a fact, I, I don't really mean to say too much with it, but there's a recent poll uh, in Ukraine. Again, I don't know how much you can, how much faith you can put in these actual numbers, but majorities held in Ukraine that US and NATO in the West were responsible, at least to a certain degree, for the war. Now, that went along with 80% or so holding Russia responsible. But nevertheless, there's still a majority of you know, 52% or something who hold the West and NATO responsible. And, and, a, and a sizable minority of maybe 20 or 30% who hold the West and uh the West, yeah, the West and NATO very responsible for, for for the war. So I think that's worth bearing in mind because that is a perspective which, if voiced in maybe you know Western capitals, would be would make you persona non grata. Um, and yet it's a reality on the ground in Ukraine. Um, so you know I think that's that's worth bearing in mind that they maybe Ukrainians themselves have more of a self consciousness of being squeezed between two powers, neither of whom have yeah, perhaps indeed. very much to offer them. Um, and it's a tragic situation, I think, and they might, you know, prefer the West, but it's one of those which is like on balance, they might prefer it, but, uh, you know, yeah. But I suppose, yeah, I mean, also on the question of the emancipatory, though, what, I mean, I guess I'd like to know more from Holger what he means by emancipatory. Like, does he mean independence for a unified Ukraine? Um, does he mean, you know, like what, like a kind of a new, um, some Social kind of new political, or something, yeah. yeah. Does he mean like a working class revolution in Ukraine? Cause that's not going to happen. Does he mean like a new kind of, um, a wider political order for Europe as a whole, the pan-European vision of, um, Gorbachev and de Gaulle that uh, Richard was talking about? Does he mean, you know, like, uh, a NATO EU solution? I mean, so those, you know, those are, because those are the kind of the meaningful political options, it seems to me the only real kind of, um, you know, that I think there has to be some kind of, I mean, ideally an end to the conflict and some way in which um, the claims for Ukrainian claims over um, the territories currently occupied by Russia can be preserved and hopefully at some point reclaimed. But it doesn't seem to me they're going to be, that's going to be in the immediate future. 
Okay, so uh, two more themes in relation to the Russia-Ukraine question. Uh, one, taking Sakwa to task for uh, his politics, and another one on uh, what the appeal of the East might or might not be, uh, that is to say, specifically China, uh, which Phil and I disagreed about. Uh, so firstly, uh, Carson said he was struck by how little distance there seems to be between Sakwa's general outlook and that of a mainstream liberal Democrat. Uh, Andrea adds, uh, speaking from Italy, that... Uh, you know, in relation to Gramscianism, there's a very long and interesting comment, which I'm summarizing slightly here, is that uh, Sacco reminded uh, Andrea of uh, Italian communist boomers still fixated on a reading of the institutionalized version of Gramsci that has been used to justify the gradualist, mild social democratic policies of the PCE, the, the uh, Italian Communist Party in Italy. Uh, the interclass expansion of the PCI towards the bourgeoisie and small entrepreneurs is epitomized in uh, in Andrea's memory of an idyllic, or rather, excuse me, is is epitomized in Sacco's memory of an idyllic red Bologna. The reality is that now under the PD, which is uh, the the inheritor party of uh, of the old Communist Party, that Bologna has become one has is one of the cities in Italy that has one of the highest house prices, as the PD has served real estate interests. Uh, these are also the guys that promoted uh, in Italy the Spinelli ver vision of a social Europe that looks so similar to the Europe from Portugal to Vladivostok that the interview or that the interviewee talks about. Um, so again, kind of uh, casting aspersions as to the illusions that Euro-communism had influenced yeah, by a certain Gramscianism. I think and, Andrea... and finally, just, just to finish, just to finish off the question, then Phil, you can come in. Um, also, uh, Andrea. Uh, takes issue with the idea that Gorbachev could have done anything significantly different and push Russia in a, in a um, different direction. Although Andrea did still nevertheless really enjoy the episode. I think Carson and Andrea are totally right. So, I mean, Richard, you know, Italian boomerism kind of, um, or Italian kind of boomerism from afar, in Richard's case, I think is absolutely accurate way of uh, describing his politics and um, the kind of nostalgia for Red Bologna. Um, and the PCI, I think, is uh, a very, you know, still kind of a baleful influence on um, on some aspects of the left today. And it is indeed, you know, kind of the Euro-communism diluted over the decades, unsurprisingly, does look very much like support for the European Union and liberal democracy. So none of that, you know, I think all of that is um, well, was well spotted by Andre and Carson. Okay, and then uh, as to the final issue on this episode, um, as I said, Phil and I, maybe disagreed as to whether China could ever represent a uh, destination for migrants and uh, maybe not a shining beacon on the hill, but you know, st still somewhere you might think, hey, I'm going to move It was there. a bit more basic than that, Alex. It was about the question of whether or not kind of China offers something to the world at the global level, a vision of a vision of um, kind of an improve of an improved life and freedom to go with the vision of economic plenty and prosperity. And I think okay. the Chinese government only offers something to the Chinese nation, really. Okay, I think well, let, even... let, me, let me take the question, then we can discuss yeah, this. So it, e Eli says, um, I think the bet the Chinese government and CCP are making is precisely that they can indeed offer something through economic de development, offer people enough freedom in their personal lifestyles to make supporting a one-party state genuinely worth it. There are 78 years still left in the 21st century, so let's not underestimate how much could happen. And Van Penner says in, in relation to this as well, I think China would be pretty happy not to supplant the clinging to a fighter jet in the hopes of escaping to the West idea of freedom, and rather uh, that China would rather promote a more flexible and progressive internationalism and developmentalism through a structure similar to the, to the UN, as discussed. Uh, it seems like a pretty unimaginative and ahistorical vision of freedom that Phil clings onto in that discussion. So I'd say in response to Van Penner, it's not me clinging onto it, right? It's Afghans literally clinging onto the undercarriage of the B-52s leaving Kabul. And millions and millions of people, you know, kind of Haitians, uh, Guatemalans, Nicaraguans, Mexicans, literally millions of people who want to go to the US every single year, right? So in as far as, you know, there is the US offers something, um, to desperate kind of Afghans who would rather, you know, kind of work um, crappy low-wage jobs in the U.S. rather than be ruled by the Taliban. Um, you know, that's not me that's that's saying it. So, and I wouldn't, um, the, you know, I'm just not uh, the uh, kind of the rose-tinted view of a U.N. developmental model provided by China doesn't really, it doesn't really uh, ring true to me either. You know, the developmentalism offered by China has been exporting their surplus capacity, essentially, 
um, two favoured regimes around the world, uh, the Belt and Road in Asia and kind of investments in Africa. And while I think, you know, kind of infrastructural development, I'm sure, is welcoming um, all over the world, right? It doesn't seem to me that it comes with a vision. And that you'd say, I think China probably offered more during its kind during the period of peak Maoism in terms of global appeal to um, people around the world than it does now. When you know yeah. now, kind of it offers money rather than any kind of ideological that, vision. I, I think the, so I think I take that. So point. let me just let me let me finish it. And, you know, and just in response to what Eli says, I'm sure you know I agree that the China you know there isn't a package with the economic growth right, but that is offered to the Chinese nation. Um, emergence from the kind of century of humiliation and degradation and restoration to a kind of rightful place in the world. It's not a global or universal vision. Um, and, you know, so that is, you know, that is the limit to it. And there, I, I take Eli's point about the 78 years left, but I don't think that the Chinese Communist Party would ever be able now to pivot to offering a global vision of freedom to the world um, or any kind of future, you know, kind of uh, that goes beyond capitalism that masses around the world could buy into. And the Soviet Union, even though it was poorer and in many respects weaker than China today, it still could kind of um, offer some tattered, faded red banner of that to people around the world. And I don't see China being able to replicate that. Yeah, no, I, I take that point. Um, certainly, kind of at that ideological level, I guess my contestation was that people might want to migrate to China, literally, because um, the even the limited freedom available there might come to be seen as more appealing, or better, or at least a worthwhile trade-off uh, than moving to the US or Europe, where they might be more excluded. Though, you know, not that China has a great record of of taking in um, migrants and often hasn't needed more people. Or indeed, um, the, the way it treats its minorities. Well, indeed. So, I mean, you know, that. but then again, that could that could change over the course of two decades. Um, I think that's completely imaginable. Um, anyway, let, let's move on to the final one. This is the uh, re most recent episode on abortion with Alex Gurevich. Lots of praise for this one. It's very popular. People, uh, I think, uh, really appreciated Alex's... Uh, not mine, Alex Gurevich's um, kind of deep take on on what is going on there and um, providing some more complexity to to the discussions that are usually had, which just revolve around, you know, bad reactionaries and, you know, good pro-choice people, and it stops there. So uh, two uh, points which I'll just read out. One is from Carson H. The U.S. politics of abortion have come to crystallize so much of what defines the impasse of post-post-historical conflict, that is to say conflict at the end of the end of history. And this discussion that we had with Alex Gurevich does a nice job of teasing out many of its aspects, from progressive liberalism's abandonment of majoritarian democracy to its intellectually vacuous and politically disabling views on sexual difference, or the supposed lack thereof, and uh, COVID vaccination mandates as well. Let us hope that socialists can seize on the utter failure and incoherence of this project to make a case for something better, a politics of freedom, solidarity, and human dignity. Here, here. Um, SW points out that the Dems are not so universally pro-choice um, as Alex Gurevich says. Uh, in fact, there's someone like Tim Kaine, who was Hillary's uh, vice presidential pick in her 2016 campaign. Uh, Tim Kaine supports, says that he supports the Roe ruling and is anti-abortion only on a personal level. But that is hardly a fulsome assertion of abortion rights. There is indeed room for anti-abortion politicians in the Democratic Party, and the, part the party will even prefer them over pro-choice candidates in certain instances. Mm, yes, but though I think that rather that rather illustrates the point. In fact, th those exceptions illustrate the rule. Uh, and uh, the, I mean, the only way in which this may prove true is if the Democrats completely fail on this count to do anything about Roe versus Wade and just have to accept that this is the new configuration with regards to reproductive rights in the U.S. and move on from there and there and then come to incorporate more you know pro-life views because uh that's the name of the game and that's what the democrats pivot to that's conceivable but that will open up such a amount of space on the democrats left that i think that will be seized upon and indeed even within the democrats own ranks there are enough of the left who would um i don't yeah. think let, let this let this battle go well let's see i guess George? so just just uh you said that alex uh, g gave a deep take on this i'm just wondering if this is a like is this something you can do is it like what is a deep take is this like 
first volume of capital is just a deep take on on economics. But I don't know if I said deep take, like, but I'm I'm tired. I guess take. it's a different. It's the opposite of a deep fake. It's a deep take. You said uh, you said <laughs> I, I just thought like I might start describing some of my like analyses that I produce as like yeah this is a a moderately deep take or this is you know this is a very deep take dank take or I don't know it just dank it just got me thinking good. a penetrating take that also you know similar going deep yeah that uh, sounds appropriate in the context to be overextending this uh this I got I, I got a speculum and wedged open the question of, it sounds uh, like it's time we should probably draw this episode probably. to our close <laughs> listeners so yeah <laughs> yes indeed uh thank you everyone for listening uh we hope you enjoyed our book recommendations or um at least our, our proposal of what we plan to read um we can carry on this conversation we'll have you back with another one of these in another six to eight weeks uh for those of you who are in uh the north and going away on a holiday um over the next two months we hope you enjoy your holiday but anyway we'll be back in uh, two weeks so we'll speak to each other then catch you later bye-bye